Ready, Freddy? Hello, and welcome to Dying to Know. My name is Jimmy. I'm here with my wife, Lindsay. Hello. And I'm totally not looking up our what episode. We are on episode 54. <laughs> <laughs> totally wasn't looking up what episode we were on. Absolutely not. You definitely had that right off the top of your head. I did. Uh, so, last week was our, like, kind of return to making weekly episodes. Yes. This week, in traditional fashion, it is Thursday night at 8 o'clock, so mm-hmm. we're recording. Of course. Uh, because we completely forgot all week. And we're <laughs> so, procrastinators. Yep. Uh, so, this week is my week. Uh, we are doing... I don't know how to describe this episode, because it's not, like, one key thing. Okay. Uh, very similar themes, all dealing with like the Soviet Union and the Cold War. So this is kind of like a, a history, military history episode. Um, I don't really <laughs> know how to <laughs> how to really get into okay, it. Okay, are we talking um, about a murder? Is it a disappearance? No, 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 it... no. This okay. is uh, so we're gonna talk about three different things. Everybody lives. Uh, we're talking about three different things. <laughs> Uh, two of which, uh, most of them live. <laughs> some of them live. Uh, we're going to talk One about one of them lives. Two people. Um, they, I'm not saying they're the only reason, mm-hmm. but these two individuals straight up stopped nuclear war during the cold war. Oh, okay. Their actions like directly, uh, influenced. Pre- well, I would, I would even say prevented. Like okay. they just, yeah, nuclear war was very, very possible during the Cold War, and the actions of these two stopped it from sparking off two separate times. Okay. And then the third individual is just an interesting... Uh, add-on? Add-on. I wasn't going to do this one, and then I, I was like, I was looking through my bookmarks, and I was like, oh shit, I could do that one too. <laughs> okay. Okay, so first we're going to start off with Vasily Arkhipov. Okay. I'm going to probably butcher that last name. We'll just go with Vasily. Yeah. His middle name is Alexandrovich. Okay. Yeah. But we're going to call him Vasily. Okay. Uh, he was a Soviet naval officer uh, during the Cold War, obviously. Um, and let's just dive into it. So right off the bat, to kind of give you a little bit of background, um, he was born to a peasant family near Moscow, uh, educated in the Pacific Higher Naval Naval School, and uh, participated in the Soviet-Japanese War. Uh, Basically was a minesweeper, so his boat went around and they looked for naval mines. In the water? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So how naval mines work is they actually sit just below the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, this is such a bad comparison, but I know for sure you've seen this movie. Like, I could point out, like, war movies I know. But you remember in Finding Nemo? Uh-huh. When Bruce throws the thing yes. and it hits the, the yes. ball? Yeah. So what they did was they sunk these mines with an anchor. And essentially, the bomb itself kind of floated in the water, held down by the anchor. Yeah. The yeah. reason for that? The mine sat just below the surface, so crews couldn't see it, but their holes would hit it as they yeah. drove over them. Or Obviously, you if, hit it, it explodes, blows a hole in your hull. Yeah, or they were sunk lower to stop submarines. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's what he did. Uh, after 
graduating uh, naval school in 1947, a different naval school, uh, he served. He started working on submarines. Okay. Okay. Uh, which submarine crews? That's a whole nother beast. Like just in general. So anyway, he was appointed in. So that was in 1947. In 1961. So he's got some time under his belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been in the military about less than 20 years. Okay. Uh, he was appointed deputy commander an executive officer of a ballistic missile submarine that just had the designation K-19. After a few days of conducting exercises off the coast of Greenland, the submarine developed an extreme leak in its nuclear reactor system. Okay. So the cooling system just completely shit the bed. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a nuclear reactor off the coast of Greenland going haywire. Yeah. Uh, Funny enough, radio communications also went out, but with radiation leaking, it makes sense that the radio shit the bed. Yeah. Uh, So the crews were unable to make contact with anybody. Okay. So with no backup systems, uh, the captain of this crew, with the help of Vasily, ordered seven members of the engineer crew to come up with a solution of how they were going to stop this nuclear meltdown. This required the men to work in high radiation levels for extended periods. Uh, They came up with a secondary coolant system and actually prevented the nuclear meltdown, uh, which probably saved countless lives, right? The entire crew of the submarine was irradiated, though, throughout this process. Yeah. The engineer crew that came up with the fix uh, and their divisional officer were all dead within a month. Oh, I bet. Because they just they yeah. experienced the worst of it because they were working right next to the reactor. Uh, over the course of the next two years, fifteen more people from that the submarine crew died. Yeah. Uh, so Vasily was then after this shit show, mm-hmm. and he basically bounced back from being irradiated. He was uh, located, moved to a different submarine. Uh, Designated B-59. Okay. This submarine was located off the coast of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. So, on October 27th, 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which if you're unfamiliar with it, basically, a lot of people like painting Russia as bad in this scenario and America as good. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was interesting, right? Because the whole idea was Soviet Union wanted to put missiles on Cuba mm-hmm. to get a quicker strike at America if nuclear war broke out. And America's like, uh, you need to back the fuck up? Yes, exactly. America basically said, no, we're not going to stand for this, even though we were pushing the idea of putting missiles in like Turkey and all these other countries near yeah. the Soviet Union. The stereotypical, as America, we can do it, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, who was right and who was wrong in this situation, you know, whatever. Um, the justification in that, like, and we're getting into, like, geopolitical climate, is that the reason the nukes were put in Europe were because our allies in Europe wanted them there as a deterrence from mm-hmm. Soviet Union aggression, whereas Cuba didn't really... Besides our failed attempt at overthrowing the Cuban government, the CIA, Bay of Pigs, whole nine yards. Yeah. That was like, that was Cuba's like, hey, we need, uh, you know, 
protection as well. So anyway, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a group of 11 uh, U.S. destroyers and an aircraft carrier uh, went down in that region. The whole thing was they were going to blockade Cuba, stop the missiles from being delivered. Uh, at this time, the U.S. carrier group, so the, all the U.S. ships, discovered the diesel-powered, which diesel-powered uh, submarines, very loud, very noisy, easy to detect. They were the precursor to the nuclear-powered submarines. Okay. Um, they detected this the diesel-powered B-59 that Vasily was serving on near okay. Cuba. Despite being in international waters, the U.S. started signal dropping signaling depth charges. So it's basically the idea is the depth charge goes in and when it... Ex- it displaces the water, right? Yes. And it, it can actually cause the metal on a submarine to warp. Yeah. So what they did was they were dropping them not on the submarine but just enough away to try to force the submarine to come up and tell them mm. to back the fuck off. Because okay. if the submarine stays down there, it's trying to hide. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did forget to mention is the B-29, or B-59, the submarine, although it was a diesel-powered sub, it was equipped with nuclear torpedoes. Oh, okay. So they were, you know, yeah. nu- they were torpedo nukes, essentially. Uh, so while being, uh, these depth charges are being dropped, the crew is trying to figure out what's going on. They'd been cut off because of their position. They'd been cut off from Moscow for days okay. because there was no radio relay, right? Yeah. Uh, and although the submarine's crew had picked up, uh, U.S. civilian radio broadcasts, they had no way to, uh pick up anything from Russia, especially once the depth charges start dropping, they dove lower to avoid them. That cut off all radio contact, U.S. Okay. or whatever. The U.S. dropping the depth charges, though, made everyone on board think that full-on war had broke out between the U.S. and Russia. Oh, shit. So, the captain of the submarine, a guy by the last name of whew, here we go, Grigorovich? <laughs> Okay. Sounds right. Oh, that's his middle name. My bad. His name is Valentin Grigorovich Savitsky. Okay. So we're going to call him Savitsky. Decided that a war had started and wanted to use one of their nuclear torpedoes to sink the aircraft carrier. Oh, shit. Uh, Which would have definitely kicked off war. Unlike the other submarines in the flotilla, the three officers on board the B-59 had to agree unanimously to mm. authorize a nuclear launch. Okay. Savitsky, uh, the political officer, I'm not going to say his whole name, but his last name is Maslenikov, <clears throat> and our boy Vasily Arkhipov, right? Mm. Arkhipov, yeah. Uh, typically, Soviet submarines armed with the special weapon, which were the, so- the nuclear missiles, only required the captain to get uh, authorization from the political officer uh, to launch a torpedo. But since Arkhipov was on the vessel and he was acting as like the flotilla commodore, another layer was added. Mm. So three people had to agree, not just two. 
Okay. Uh, an argument broke out among the three officers with Savitsky and Maslenikov for launching a weapon. Arkhipov, Valenzi uh, Arkhipov saying, no, we're yeah. not shooting a weapon. She, why does she squeak a toy anytime we record? I don't know. <clears throat> so, even though he was second in command of B-59, the fact that he was Commodore of the entire flotilla, including the other nuclear-armed vessels in it, uh, he was able to leverage his position and basically... Uh, the incident I mentioned earlier where he was on the ship, the nuclear uh, sub that basically stopped the reactor meltdown, he not only was the flotilla commodore, but he had this reputation of being cool under pressure, level-headed, and calm. So when the argument broke out, and he was the level-headed one, like, no, the crew started backing him instead of the Mm -hmm. captain, and basically everyone kind of was like this is not a good idea yeah the submarine uh he eventually said hey let's get to the surface see what's going on and then we'll make our call they get to the surface wait orders from moscow uh, they finally hear from moscow saying hey guess what war did not break out mm-hmm. everything's going on basically him just being on that ship. So the incident earlier that gained him the reputation, him being the flotilla commander, him being everything, being on this ship, he, no kidding, stopped them from starting World War Three. Yeah. Um. So the other reason he was able to convince them to go up, they were arguing so long, the batteries had run low and the air conditioning ended up failing. Oh, so no. they were running out of air. Yeah. So he basically stalled them long enough for them to have to surface the yeah. submarine. Uh, they no shit came to the surface in the middle of the U.S. carrier group mm-hmm. and just kind of tucked their tail between their legs and bolted. Yeah. Um, when they returned to Russia, they actually were faced uh, with disgrace because the story had gotten out it made the soviet union look weak they surfaced right in the middle of the americans mm. whole nine yards uh but i said valenzi earlier it's vasily vasily you know didn't like talking about it. he actually even though he stopped world war three it was like great shame to him because he let down like the motherland right mm-hmm. um the reason they were considered <laughs> sorry the reason they were like it was seen as shameful was they weren't supposed to be there in the first place mm-hmm. so them coming up in the middle of the american flotilla revealed that there was a submarine there even yeah. though the americans knew and were dropping death charges it was that it was the confirmation yep uh the story that the reason the uh, nuclear that the sorry, the story that the submarines were armed with nuclear torpedoes and uh, Vasily was the reason World War Three didn't start didn't come out till two thousand two. Damn. Okay. Right? And it was a retired commander that basically told the story. Um, 
but yeah, so that's hmm. essentially that's the story. I mean, he he kept commanding. It's not like they forced him out of the military or anything. Mm-hmm. He actually uh, ran like submarine squadrons. Like, dude made it to rear admiral. He was head of the naval academy. Yeah, became vice admiral. Like, he did his whole thing. Uh, I mean, he didn't really get shunned but he did end up dying of kidney cancer which is attributed to being exposed to the radiation from yeah. the first incident so that's the first one okay i thought it was really cool i stumbled that across really a news cool. article about him at one point and i was like oh you know kind of interesting yeah so second individual uh again during the cold war um so this is before we get to the individual, again, kind of want to set the backdrop. So, in I don't know if you know about this. In 1983, there was a Korean airliner that was flying from New York to Seoul, Korea. Okay. St- after they stopped in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. So, they went from New York to Anchorage, Alaska, Alaska to Seoul. Okay. It was sh- actually shot down by a uh, Soviet su-15 interceptor so we're talking a civilian 747 yeah uh was shot down it was all 269 passengers and crew were killed holy shit. uh including a u.s representative from the state of georgia um the soviet union believed it was a u.s recon plane that had broken their airspace they misidentified it it wow. was 100% a civilian airliner, and they had every right to be there. Yeah. But it was... Oh, my bad. They didn't have every right to be there. They de- deviated from the original route uh, due to a navigational error. And they actually okay. ended up flying on the like just inside the edge of restricted airspace. Mm. Uh, so... I still feel like... So... The Soviet Union Air Forces treated the identified, <laughs> sorry, unidentified aircraft as an intruding U.S. spy plane and destroyed it with air-to-air missiles after firing warning shots, which is assumed, it's assumed to be that the pilots didn't see it. Whether they fired warning shots, whether whatever is up for debate, the Soviet Union claims they fired warning shots. The plane didn't stop, so they took their shots. Under normal circumstances, you would get closer to yeah. VID, visually ID it. But, uh, you know. So they got shot down. Soviet Union initially denied incident knowledge. They were like, we don't know what you're talking about. Of course. Uh, they later came out and was like, yep, we know about it. We were convinced it was a U.S. spy plane that broke our airspace. We gave it warning shots. They said it was a uh the do you know what the i i I fuck up the name of this the politburo of the soviet union so it's the political bureau of the central committee of the communist party of the soviet union it's essentially think of like our government how we have like the the cabinet and like the uh essentially like just the higher level of government yeah it was that for the communist party communist party uh they came out and were like, yep, we knew it got shot down. We thought it was a U.S. spy plane. We thought it was a deliberate, like, 
increase in hostilities from the United States. Uh, that sounds a lot more to me like we're going to pretend we don't know what you're talking about until we have our story straight. That's what a lot of people came to the conclusion. Uh, so they said that, you know, that they thought it was the U.S. trying to provoke a war. The White House then straight up said the Soviet Union was obstructing obstructing search and rescue operations till they could clean up their mess. Mm-hmm. And it just caused yeah. in, uh, tensions to just skyrocket. Um, it actually caused one of the highest spikes in anti-Soviet Union uh, sentiment in the U.S. Like, well, I'm you, sure. I mean, you've got you've got whole families. Well, well, there's a whole country that that like, did they get their families' bodies back? I don't. I don't know how much is left at that point. Well, I know, but like, so, um. I'm trying to to think of the best way to put this. Like, if you watch, go back, now Danny's howling. If you go back and watch, like, um, anything from that time period, there were, there was communist sen- sentiment in America. There was, well, uh, yeah. like, but this, like, killed a lot of it. This was, like, the, the moment that was, like, the slap in the face, like, oh, shit's not right over there. Yeah. Not the shoot down. The cover-up. The cover-up yeah. was what destroyed any mm-hmm. a lot of communist sentiment in America. Uh, so anyway, that gives you the, the state at which the backdrop of what had just happened, okay? Okay. So now we're going to introduce Stanislav Petrov. Okay. Okay. This uh Born to a military family, uh, he basically joined the Soviet Air Forces and became part of the Soviet Air Defense Forces. So, air defense, think of surface-to-air missiles, defense of the homeland, whole nine okay. yards. Uh, he was then assigned in the 70s to an organization that oversaw the new early, early warning system. The, to detect ballistic missile attacks from the U uh, from NATO countries. So basically, early warning systems are just. You ever see like the pictures of the old giant ass radar arrays? They look like lattice work towers and shit. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the whole concept is they just shoot radar as far as they fucking can. Mm-hmm. And it's like, does it pick up anything? Got it. They aren't accurate. They aren't anything. It is literally early warning. It's like, okay, something's over there. Let's point something with a stronger power towards yeah. it. Okay. So, he's working at this early warning system, right? Mm-hmm. The plane is shot down on September 1st, 1983. Okay. Okay. So, the this story about our, our man Petrov takes place on September 26th. So same month, like Russia had just shot down a plane from the U.S. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. According to the permanent mission of the Russian Federation to the U.N., nuclear retaliation requires the multiple sources of to confirm an attack. So basically, there have to be multiple things in place that say we are under attack. It can't just be one person that's like, yes. Yeah. Um. There's a reason this is now in place. 
Okay. Uh, the incident that I'm about to talk about exposed a serious flaw in the Soviet early warning system. Okay. So, on September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov was a lieutenant colonel for the Soviet Air Defense Forces. Okay. He was the officer on duty at Serpikov 15. It was a bunker near Moscow, which basically housed the command center of the Soviet early warning satellites, uh, codenamed OKO. So the satellites work with the radars to detect shit coming in. Okay. His responsibilities included observing the satellite early warning network and notifying his superiors of any impending nuclear missile attack against the Soviet Union, regardless of where it came from. If notification was received from the systems that inbound missiles had been detected, the Soviet Union's strategy was an immediate and compulsory nuclear attack against the United States, meaning if they get indications that they're being shot at, they press the fucking button to launch theirs. Okay. That was just the nature of the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, it was the doctrine of mutually assured, mutual assured destruction. Uh, it's just military strategy. Basically, a lot of countries had it in place at this time. If nukes start flying, we launch an ours. Yeah. Uh, shortly after midnight, the bunker's computers picked up that one intercontinental ballistic intercontinental ballistic missile was heading towards the Soviet Union from the United States. Okay. Petrov considered the detection to be a computer error because he straight up sat and thought, he was like, if the U.S. is launching nuclear war, they're not going to send one fucking missile. True. Like, straight up. That yeah. was his his whole judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said if it was going to happen, they were going to launch everything they had because mm-hmm. of the whole thing. They knew Russia would launch back uh, because they the U.S. would try to deny Russia the, or the Soviet Union. I keep saying Russia. The Soviet Union means of a counterattack. Yeah. Furthermore, the satellite system's reliability had been questioned in the past. Mm. Like, the higher-ups are like, it's foolproof. Petrov, who worked on it daily, it's like, nah. knew the system was broke. Yeah. Uh, he dismissed the warning as a false alarm. Okay. Probably the biggest, ballsiest move he could have done. Because yeah. if that missile had gone, if it was a missile had gone through, it would have been a shit show. Uh, it's up to debate. Because depending on who's telling the story about <laughs> how or if he notified his superiors or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's different stories. Petrov's suspicion that the warning system was malfunctioning was confirmed when no missile, in fact, arrived. So he's like, that's not right. And he sat and watched. And basically, yeah. if he was wrong, missile was going to hit if he was right. Later, the computers identified four additional missiles in the air, all directed towards the Soviet Union. Petrov suspected that the computer system was malfunctioning again, despite having no direct means to confirm this. Ooh, okay. The Soviet... Even more ballsy. <laughs> the Soviet Union's land radar, the one I was talking about, was incapable of seeing beyond the horizon. Okay. Okay. It was subsequently determined that the false alarms were caused by a rare alignment of sunlight on high-altitude clouds and the satellite's orbits, an error later corrected by cross-referencing a geostationary satellite. Holy shit. It was the sun reflecting off clouds that caused these warnings to go yeah. off. Uh, explaining the factors to his leading to his decision, Petrov cited his belief in training that the U.S. would strike would be so massive uh, to 
stop a counterattack, he believed five missiles was just flat out illogical. Yeah. In addition, the lost detect system was new and in his view, not yet wholly trustworthy. He just didn't trust the system. Mm -hmm. While the ground radar had failed to pick up uh, corroborative evidence even after several minutes of false alarm. So basically he trusted the ground radar more than he trusted the satellite. Yeah. Uh, Petrov underwent intense questioning by his superiors. They I'm wanted sure. to know why he didn't do anything. Initially he was praised mm-hmm. for stopping World War Three. Uh But the then com- it, then someone was like, Oh, that could have gone really badly. General Yuri Vatinsev, who was the commander of the Soviet air defense missile defense units, not so mouthful. <laughs> uh he was the first to hear Petrov's report of the incident and stated that and these are quotes, his correction correct actions were duly noted okay uh petrov himself stated that he was initially praised and was promised a reward but then he they he recalled that he was reprimanded for improper filing of paperwork with the pretext that he not described the incident in the military diary basically they had a journal they kept track of everything he received no reward According to Petrov, this was because the incident and other bugs in the found in the missile detection system embarrassed his superiors and the influential scientists who were responsible for it, so that if he had been officially rewarded, they would have been publicly punished and it would have been made to the United mm-hmm. States that the Soviet Union was weak. They then reassigned him to a less important post and took an early retirement, although he was adamant that he wasn't forced out. Wow. Uh, That's so shitty. And ended up suffering a nervous breakdown. Mm. Um, Like you stopped us from starting an all-out war over nothing, (laughs) but uh, screw you. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Wow. Oh, so going back to the airlines, I did forget to talk about this. Uh, This shootdown of this airline is actually what led to... The U.S. Uh, get basically completing worldwide access to GPS, oh. the global position system. It was a U.S. only thing until this time. Mm-hmm. They, after uh, this shootdown, it was one of the incidents uh, that actually prompted uh, Ronald Reagan, who was the president at the time, to allow the entire world to use GPS to prevent mm. something like this from happening again. It also actually spurred changes in uh, the autopilot used on airlines because it was belief that the autopilot is what fucked up because they navigated, they did the navigational shit and turned it on autopilot and that's what caused them to get shot down. Yeah. But yeah, I thought those two were interesting. I know yeah. this episode kind of seems a little bit all over the place. I'm sorry about that, but I don't feel like it is personally. Okay. Next one we're going to talk about. Last one we're going to talk about. These are not nuclear war related. Related okay. to the Soviet Union. It's not related to the Soviet Union? It is Union? related to the Soviet okay. Union. So. Jin. Please stop. Uh, so. Can I have this? This is. Or the you can, no. No. Jin. Come here. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Sorry. No, you're fine. Jin. Come here. <laughs> Let me have that. Trying to get our dog squeaky toy from We need to start talking, taking them away before we start. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Get back into podcasting mode. (laughs) Uh, This is the story of Sergei Krikalev. Okay. We're just going to call him Sergei. So our boy Sergei here 
was a Soviet and Russian, because obviously fall Soviet Union stopped being known as a Soviet, Soviet and Russian uh-huh. mechanical engineer and cosmonaut. Okay. Uh, he was actually, no shit, a legit rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to space six different times and actually has the third most amount of time in space in history. He has spent a total of 803 days, nine hours and 39 minutes in space. Wow. There is a reason for that. Okay. So uh, he was born in Leningrad, Soviet Union, uh, which is now St. Petersburg, Russia. Okay. Uh, Graduated from high school, ended up getting a mechanical engineering degree. Um, He ended up joining a company called NPO Energia. It was a Russian industrial organization revol- responsible, basically contracted out to the Rus- or the uh, <coughs> Soviet Union to do manned spaceflight stuff. Okay. He tested flight equipment. Um, he worked on all kinds of stuff. He was selected to be a cosmonaut in 1985. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he, at that time, would have been 27. Okay. Okay. Completed his basic training in 1986, and for the first and for a time was assigned to the Russian or the Soviet Union shuttle program. In 1988, he began training for his first long-duration flight aboard the Mir space station. It's one of the, like, think like International Space Station, but it was the Russian Soviet Union version. It was just M I R Mir. Uh. The training included preparations for six spacewalks, installation of a new module, the first test of the new manned maneuvering unit, so a little jetpack thing. Uh, the second, jo- it, it was the second joint Soviet and French mission. This was like when the Soviet Union started kind of trying to keep ties, start building ties with people. Um, so he goes up, right? After the previous crew returns to Earth, the guys on the space station return. Uh, Sorry, I lost my my spot here. (laughs) The previous crew remained on the station for another 25 days, making the longest period a six-person crew had been in orbit. Okay. After the previous crew returned to Earth, uh, our boy and two others continued to conduct experiments aboard the station. Because the arrival of the next crew had been delayed, uh, they prepared the MER for a period of unmanned operations before returning to Earth in April 1989. So they go up, they leave it unmanned, they come back. Okay. In April 1990, uh, Sergei begins preparing for a second flight of for a backup second flight as a member of the backup crew for the eighth long duration MER mission. Uh, so he begins, basically he's going back and forth. The whole point of this, he's going back and forth to the, uh, unit, right? Okay. Or the space station. Yeah. So, sorry, I keep losing my freaking (laughs) spot. Long story short, there's a lot of detail here. He goes back and forth. Very experienced crew member. He's on the space station when the Soviet Union disbands. Oh, shit. So 
with the Cosmodrome mm-hmm. and the landing area are no longer in Russian. They're Russia. They're now in the newly de- independent Kazakhstan. Oh, no. So there was a lot of uncertainty because his passport wasn't valid. Yeah. Who was bringing him home? Oh, my God. He was literally stuck in space. Yeah. And because he never, he hadn't come back, he uh, remained in space twice as long as originally planned. Oh, no. So when he was supposed to be up there for about four to five months, he ended up being about up the, uh, on the space station for 311 days. Oh my gosh. Uh, he returned to Earth on March 25th, uh, 1955. Or no, 1992. My bad. Um, basically, he is known as being the last Soviet Union citizen. Because everyone else, he was the only Soviet Union citizen up there at the time because they were doing joint ventures and everything was going on. Uh, (coughs) So when he stayed up there and everyone else had come home, they literally were like, didn't know what to do with him. And there's stories of them telling him like, he's like, am I coming home? Like, who's coming to get me? How am I getting home? Mm -hmm. And them straight up telling him, we don't don't know. know. Oh, poor guy. Because it was... A yeah. point of turmoil. They didn't know how to get this guy back. Uh, long story short, they did get him back. Uh, and funnily enough, funny enough, homeboy kept going. Kept going back to space. <laughs> Returned back to Russia. Uh, the Russian Space Agency, which is their version of NASA, is uh-huh. founded following the fall of the Soviet Union. He starts working for them, and he goes back into space multiple times. Uh, he actually flies, starts flying for NASA in oh. the United States. Okay. Um, and started doing crewed missions to the International Space Station. Hmm. But I just thought it was interesting that yeah. he literally was up there because, like, you always think about like the fall of the Soviet Union. I've, I lately I've been reading a book about the fall of the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. and Russia's government after that. And it was just pure chaos because no yeah. one knew what to do. You never think of things like this. Yeah. Where this dude was just stuck in space. And it reminds you of, um, what's that Tom Hanks movie? The Terminal. Yeah. It reminds mm-hmm. you of that. Like he, he was stuck there because his country mm-hmm. fell apart and yeah. his passport wasn't valid. Um, but no, I just thought it was cool. I thought that was mm-hmm. a cool little add-on one because that one obviously was not long enough to be a full episode on so. But those were all really interesting. Yeah, felt like it was a little all over the place. I'm uh, you glad always you guys, feel like that though. Guys, uh, stuck around for the ride. Um, I know our podcast tends to be darker and more murder and very true scary stuff. Uh, but we do we do try to sometimes I like, bring in things that aren't necessarily like all morbid. Well, I like military history too. Yeah. So it kind of lets me go on a tirade, and I find a way to like transfer <laughs> in because like the way I looked at it, like the two nuclear war things, obviously that's terrifying. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like kind of. Oh, kind of like recaging it, right? Like the first story with the submarine. If he wasn't on that submarine. There was a very good chance nuclear war would have broken out, mm-hmm. right? And the only reason he was on that submarine was because that first submarine had a leak. So if yeah. that submarine, it was like a ripple effect, right? Yeah. 
the second story, all that dude had to do was pick up the phone and be like, missiles are incoming yeah. and World War Three could have started. Mm-hmm. Both times, both individuals literally took a deep breath and were like, something's not right here. Yeah. Uh, and then the third one, I just think of the fear of being in space and then being like, we don't know how we're getting you home. Yeah. The like first that... two is definitely more of like a trust your gut kind of situation. Yeah. Um, third one oh poor guy <laughs> yeah but you know it didn't like i said didn't phase him because he kept going back to space yeah. so but anyway that's all i got this week okay well i enjoyed it good job thanks <laughs> but anyway if you enjoyed it yeah you know the drill dynano.simplecast.com has all of our social media links uh we're two for two right now two weeks in a row we've put out an episode on fridays <laughs> so we're gonna try to keep it up but anyway, if you don't got anything else, that's all I got. All right, I'm good. I'm good. All right, well, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time. Okay, love you. Bye.